0: Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come together and to learn of you. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at the scriptures and show us what you would want us to see from this all. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 7, we left off with Stephen having been arrested. He's having all kinds of people make accusations against him. And we left off in the in verse 6 that, the, that all sat in the council looking steadfastly at him and saw his face as if it had been the face of an angel. He was just so... Calm and so serene that it amazed them. All right, and um, we drew the allusions to how Jesus was always in control of the whole situation from the time he was arrested to the time he was put on the cross. He was very serene and, and just calm. And you know, this is something for us as, as Christians is when all hell breaks loose against us, God is still in charge, and we can stay calm and stay uh, peaceful because he's in charge as long as we're looking at the fact that he's in charge. We'll be just like the world. If we're not focused on him, we'll be just like the world. Uh, Peter was able to walk on the water until he looked at the storm. And when we're looking at Jesus, we can be calm. And so we're going to look at Stephen's answer to this. Because the very first thing in verse 7 is, then the high priest said, are these things true? All right, and one thing we want to understand is just as in America, the Jewish court system had a situation where the accused did not have to say anything, did not have to say anything at all, and yet Stephen is going to choose to answer, all right, right? Acts 7, verse 1, then the high priest, then said the high priest, are these things true? (laughs) Okay, Uh, And Stephen did not have to answer, and yet he is going to answer the high priest. And he said, verse 2, and he said, Men, brethren, fathers, hearken. The God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia and when he dwelt in Haran, and said to him, Get you out of your country and from your kindred, and come into the land which I will show you. Then he came out, he, in the land of Chaldeans, and dwelt in the land in Haran, and from thence, when his father was dead, he removed him into this land wherein you now dwell. And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot on, yet he promised that he would give him to him for a possession, and to a seed after him, when as yet he had no children. And God spoke in this wise, that, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should be, should should bring in them into bondage, and entreat them for evil four hundred years. And the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, says the Lord, and after that they shall come forth and serve me in this place. And he gave them the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham begat Isaac, and, and circumcised him the eighth day, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the twelve patriarchs. And the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph into Egypt, but God was with him and delivered him out of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt and all his house. We're going to stop there, 10 verses, so there's a lot lot going on here. Um, Most of this is history, and I think we know this, but we'll kind of fill in some of this history as we go along. Uh, this was well-known history to the, to the council, obviously. Uh, the Jewish leaders, the, all of this is greatly celebrated for the Jews. And so he starts answering them, and he's answering them, Are all these accusations true? Have you made, have you made bad comments about Moses? Have you said that the temple was going to be destroyed? And all these, all these accusations that are coming against him. And he's given them a history lesson. Quite an interesting defense. starts out with a history lesson. And he goes, hey, you know, all of you men here, listen. God appeared to Abraham. So he goes all the way back to the beginning of the Jewish people, Father Abraham. He goes, God appeared to Abraham and told him to leave Mesopotamia and come to this land. And this is something that, you know, we, we know. This, this is part of what uh, happens in uh, in the history of, this, uh, of, of uh, Judaism, in Genesis, uh, we're told that God called him. Genesis 12, 2. Uh, so that's the call of, of Abraham. And I just want to read it to you because it is quite an interesting, interesting, interesting statement. As, and this is something that these guys, they know the story. They, know it. they don't even have to be, be really reminded, but he's reminding them what this is where we started now the in verse two, genesis 12:1 now the lord said unto abraham get you out of your country and from your kindred and from your father's house into the land which i will show you and i will make you there a great nation and i will bless you and make your name great and you shall be a blessing and i will bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you and in you shall all families of the earth be blessed so abraham departed as the lord had spoken to him And Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. So this is the promise to Abraham. This is the Abrahamic covenant, that he will give him the land, he will make him a great nation, all that bless him shall be blessed, and all that curse him and his descendants shall be cursed. And this is what Stephen is referring back to at this first start. Abraham left Ur of Chaldees, Mesopotamia, and he left by God's command, went up the Euphrates to Haran, and stopped. And if you recall, it said, leave your family behind. And we know that he took his father, and he took Lot. And he stopped at Haran. And he stays at Haran for a while, and then he finally leaves Haran, and he still brings Lot. Right? And apparently Lot was younger, young enough to be treated you know, as... His father had died. It was his nephew. He felt responsible, and basically, even though God said leave his family behind, he did not. And how many times do we do partial obedience to God? You know, we can't judge judge Abraham for what he did because we're going well. Of course, he couldn't leave his nephew behind, especially not in a time like that. You know, Um, but if you remember the story, this becomes a problem. His, his people and, and, and Lot's people start arguing. They split the land. Lot's people, and, Lot, and Abraham gives Lot the first choice of the land. He picks Sodom and Gomorrah, which at the time was a green and prosperous place. Uh, so God judges Sodom and Gomorrah, destroys it. Abraham, um, and Lot takes his two daughters and his wife. His wife looks back, becomes a pillar of salt. They get up in the mountains, and Lot has no intention of ever going anywhere but the cave they're dwelling in. And then his daughters have incest with him by getting him drunk, and out of that comes two nations that are going to be problems for the people of Israel for the rest of the time. Uh, So this is the history. Disobedience brought problems. Later on, we know that his, I'm going to go through some of our history because uh, Stephen doesn't really go into all of this problems that were drawn. But later on, because he gets tired of waiting for God to give him a child, Sarah talks him into taking Hagar. Hagar gives birth to Ishmael. Ishmael gives birth to 12 major nations within that area that are still problems for Israel today. Another disobedience, not waiting for God. And this is something that we have to really understand, and I keep harping on this all the time. Sin has consequences, and sometimes sin has very long-term consequences because God does not have the same time span that we do, and we'll see this in, in Stephen's defense. He's going to talk about how God has a much longer period of time. But God told Abraham, go, and I'm going to make you a great nation. Abraham ends up with one son. You can, you know, from his point of view, he's going, God, you told me I'm going to be a great nation, and I've got one son. And I don't own anything. When Abraham dies, he owns one piece of property, and that's a cave with a field around it that he buried his wife in. That's the only thing he owned, and that was up around Shechem. It's the only thing he owns in the whole time that he wanders around Canaan. Isaac's going to wander around Canaan. You know, he's, going to, he's going to do better than his dad. He gets two kids. And he still, when he dies, owns one cave with a field around it. Jacob is going to go to Egypt, where they're going to live for 400 years. And he still only owns one piece of land with a cave and a field around it. But he gets to have a great nation. He gets to have 12 kids who, who then become a nation when they come out of Egypt, three and a half to four million people strong. God raises up the nation, but it took 430 years to get there from the time that Abraham was talked to. Abraham didn't realize initially that God was talking about 430 years. He's like, okay, God, I'm ready to be a nation. When, when am I going to be a nation? How are these people going to bless me if I don't have a nation? And God's looking much further down the road than Abraham was. All right, so he says, get you out of your country and from your kindred to the land of Lishud. And then he came out of the land, in verse 4, of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved into the land wherein you now dwell. So he goes, eventually he got here. (laughs) Okay. Eventually, Abraham was obedient to God, mostly. He made it to Canaan, where he wandered around with his sheep and his goats and his herds for the rest of his life. And it's kind of an amazing thing because he's tracking down the history on it. And verse 5, And he gave him none inheritance in it, no, not so much as to set his foot. Yet he promised that he would give it to him for a possession, and to his seed after him when as yet he had no children and again remember abraham is not going to have isaac until he's almost 100 years old now we talk about having a kid in your old age i mean that's even at that time that was fairly old now abraham's going to live longer than that and it's kind of funny because abraham lives long enough even though it's, when you read the book of genesis genesis takes and starts abraham's life follows Abraham until he dies, then goes back and does Isaac's life, takes Isaac up until the time he dies, and then goes back and does Jacob's life and takes Jacob until he dies and puts puts Joseph in the middle of all that. The funny thing is, Abraham lives long enough to have seen Jacob's kids. (laughs) But you would never know it just reading it. You have to look at how old they are and when he had his kids and realize, wow, he saw his he saw his grandkids. you know he was aware of these of these children, and then we this morning we were talking about Eber, and last week we were talking about Eber. Eber lives beyond joseph okay he He lives long beyond Joseph's time, and you know we we only have this little quick reference of Eber, and so we want to put these ages in perspective, and so we look at here and he says. He died, God promised him, even though he had no seed, he was promised a blessing. And then in verse 6, And God spoke on this wise, that his seed should sojourn in a strange land, and that they should be, they should be wrung into captivity, and, in, and entreat them for evil for 400 years. Now this was given in Genesis chapter 15, Starting at verse verse twelve, and this is the setting on this in verse twelve is Abraham's complaining. God, I have no children. <laughs> you know, I am getting old. Sarah is old. Sarah, and, and we find out you know Sarah's past the age of bearing children. She she is past menopause. She is ha- past period time. And this is why when the, when the angel came and said Sarah's going to give birth next year, she laughed. As any other woman would who's not had a period for, for, for years, she laughed. Like, right, I'm, I'm old, I'm dried up, I'm, you know, uh, and I'm going to have a child. And, and God did a great miracle for her. But he's complaining to God, and God says, here's your promise. And then he says in verse 12 of chapter 15, Then when the sun was going down, and deep sleep fell upon Abram, lo, a horror of the great darkness fell upon him, and he said to Abraham, Know of a surety that your seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them for four hundred years. And also that nation whom they serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance, and you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried of a good age. But in the fourth generation they shall come here, to there again for in the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full so God told Abraham your children are going to cap will go into captivity 400 years now the thing about this 400 years is, is when it starts is when Abraham was told all right if you take from the time Isaac was born he's the child of promise 430 years later you have the exodus of god delivering his people so we have this wonderful promise that was given to them which you know we say wonderful but hey by the way abraham your children are going to be in captivity and then i'll then i'll deliver them and we look at this this promise was so beautiful because it says they're going to be a stranger in land they're going to be abused in 400 years they're going to be able to come out with great substance and when and they will be judged god judged egypt sent the ten plagues on them, virtually wiped out Egypt with the ten plagues, wiped them out economically, wiped out their, their, their animals, wiped out their people, and then took the firstborn. Then, and then when they get to the Red Sea, Pharaoh sends his army into the Red Sea to chase them, and God covers them with the Red Sea, destroys their army, and then we have a dynasty change in Egypt because they're now weak. The Pharaoh is totally weak. And so we see this, and he says, they're going to be judged. And he says, they will come out with great substance. And if you remember the story of the Exodus, God told the people, go ask your neighbors for stuff. And their neighbors said, we're we're so happy to get rid of these guys. They gave them all the riches of Egypt, pretty much. They gave them jewels and gold and silver and basically said, go, get you know, and part of this was because of their mentality, they were trying to buy a blessing. Because what did you do when things were bad? You took the offerings to your God and you made a great offering. Their God has just defeated every one of their gods. So they're out there trying to buy a blessing. Would you guys, here, I'm gonna give you all this money, go, go pray to your God and for, for us. And so we see this and they leave with everything. And why did God say all this was happening? because the iniquity of the Amorites was not full. In other words, God said, Abraham, you've been talking to these guys, you've been, you've been sharing me with these people, they're making bad decisions, but they're not as evil as they need to be to be judged. God has this thing, and sometimes we look at it and go, God, why are you waiting so long to do something? God always has a long-term plan in mind. We as human beings have very short term. God, I want it and I want it yesterday. You know, I don't want it next week. I don't want it a year from now. I don't want it ten years from now. I really wanted it yesterday, God. So please give it to me today. Uh, and we look at it. You know, God. You know, how about the rapture? God, I'm ready to go home. You know, I don't want things to get bad. It's really bad already. So just take me home. And God saying, I have a plan. The iniquity is not complete yet. And this is what God has in store. He looks and says, the end is not there yet. We look at it and say, God is terrible down here. And God says, no, you don't know what it's going to be like yet. And you know, we look at all of these things and how bad things have been over the years. The Christians and the Jews during the Second World War were being slaughtered, being killed. Now, during the communist fall of Russia, Christians were being killed and slaughtered. Uh, sent to re-education camps so they can teach them how to think the way the world wanted them to think. You know. And you know what? We as Christians have a re-education process ourselves. We're teaching you to think the way the Bible, Bible thinks. And the world will try to send us back to re-education camps. And you know, this is the problem. What happens if you get into trouble with the law because you don't want to agree with political correctness? They send you to school so they can teach you how to think. Well, you need to learn how to... Be accepting of all peoples and, and, and not be so narrow-minded, you Christians. So we're going to send you to these special classes to teach you, teach you how to be more accepting of others. Yeah, well, you know, Christians are very accepting of others. They have the right to be wrong. I have, I have no problem. If somebody wants to be wrong, that's their business. But I'm not going to say that they're right. They have the right to be wrong. They have the right to live in, in sin if they want to sin because they're answerable to God. And so I'm not, I'm not even the one judging, I'm just gonna tell them what God says. But that bothers the world. The world gets bothered when, when you say what you're doing is sin. And they're going, well, you're judging me. No, I'm not judging, I'm just telling you what God says about your lifestyle. And so we look at this and he said, even when there was no seed, he says, you will be, you will be entreated of them for evil for 400 years. How would you like to be the father of nations, knowing that your, your family is going to be abused for 400 years? Now, sometimes I think God wasn't very nice sometimes when he told them this. Now, on one side, it says, all you got to do is serve for 400 years. But at the same token, he's going, God, you know, you said that those who bless me are going to be blessed, those who curse me are going to be cursed. 400 years of being cursed? <laughs> You know, and he's going, God, I'm not going to live for 400 years. And God very clearly says, the fourth generation. The fourth generation shall get the, will be released. And if you count in uh, Chronicles, you'll count four generations in Egypt before they're released. From Jacob to Moses is four generations. Now, we don't know how long all those guys live, but we know that it's four generations. And this was written long before this uh, prophecy of four generations was written long before Chronicles was written. So God's accuracy in His Word is so beautiful when we tie these things together. And this is why I like getting into those genealogies because it's like, oh, God said four generations, and you start counting Levi's kids. Yeah, Jacob, Levi, (laughs) and you go, oh, four generations in, in Egypt. And it's so fun to watch how God worked it all out. And then it says, and in verse seven, and the nation to whom they shall be in bondage will I judge, said the Lord, and after that shall they come forth and serve me in this place. So he's going through their history and all this stuff that they know. All right, this is this is very this story to them, Father Abraham is well known, how he left. Left Mesopotamia, he left the he left the, the civil, uh, uh, cradle of civilization, and he wandered around Egypt and, and had nothing. He's, right now, at this point in time, Stephen's telling them nothing that they don't know. And they're probably, if you're in the court, like, all right, Stephen, get to the point. What's your defense here? Right, uh, you're not telling us anything we don't know. Uh, why, why are you giving us a history lesson? Especially when these are the teachers, they're the one that teaches the history lesson to their disciple, you know, to their, their students and everything. And here's Stephen, giving them a history lesson. And uh, they just remember they come out, they they celebrate Passover. This is known to them. It's not too far from when they crucified Jesus. So all this, every Passover, all of this story is given out, especially Egypt, and the crossing of the Red Sea, and the and the plagues, and the and the cursing, and the killing of the firstborn. All that is brought up. And even to this day, the Jewish families on Passover go through all of this history. And right now we're in the time where the tabernacles is celebrated and the Feast of Trumpets. Tabernacles is a celebration of the wandering in the wilderness where God took care of them. And they lived in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's what they talk about all during that this period of time. And right now we're in the, the season of, the, of three... Fall festivals, the Feast of Trumpets, the Rosh Hashanah, and the the, uh, Feast of Tabernacles. The three major feasts which all have to be fulfilled yet. Um, And so he's giving them this little history lesson. They know this history. This is not, you know, we need to review it because we don't necessarily know it as well. But they talk about it all year long. It's kind of like our stories of Christmas. You know, we, we have our Christmas stories and we tell the story of Jesus' birth and how they moved came from Nazareth down to, to Bethlehem and Jesus was born and the wise men visited. This is the stuff that they would go through every year during these feasts and they're looking at him going, okay, what, what's the point? <laughs> Feast of Trumpets, Feast of Tabernacle and Hashanah or the... the um, um, the English version of it. <laughs> um, so you, you, the celebration of the um, forgiveness of sins, and that's the one feast that they all had. One of the two, one of the three feasts that they all had to go to the temple for. So verse eight says, and he gave them the command, the, the covenant of circumcision to Abraham. Uh, to uh, to him, so circumcision. God said, "This is the symbol of our covenant, Abraham. You are to circumcise every male child on the eighth day." And this is still practiced by the Jews to this day. They circumcise their children. Um, the Muslims also circumcise their children, but they circumcise their children based on when Ishmael was was circumcised on the tenth year. Uh, so. That's a little bit later in, the, in their life. Uh, and then it gives a history that Abraham begat Isaac, and he circumcised him, and Isaac begat Jacob, and Jacob begat the 12 patriarchs. So he gives an entire history in one sentence, uh, saying, okay, you, you, know, you know our fathers, Father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You'll see this all through the scriptures. This is the way they referred to the, to the patriarchs. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was always mentioned together, or not always, but often mentioned together. He's tied them together. And then he goes, and the patriarchs moved with envy, sold Joseph to Egypt, but God was with him. And this is our story as we come in. And envy. Envy is a strong word, and it's something that's somebody who's moved with the desire to cause harm or see harm done to another. And Joseph's brothers, his ten brothers, originally were just going to throw him in a pit and let him die. But they decided to sell him into slavery and figure that we'll let the, we'll let the Egyptians, we'll let the, the traders take him to Egypt and they'll kill him because the slaves eventually die. Or we'll, at least we'll never see him again. He'll be a slave. And that was God. You know. Now, at the time, can you imagine your Isaac? Your brothers are talking about killing you to begin with. Or not Isaac, but Jacob. Joshua, Joseph. I'll get the right name here eventually. You're Joseph. Your brothers are talking about killing you. That's got to be bad enough. Especially when God's given you a dream that your brothers are going to bow down to you. Then they decide to sell you into slavery. This had to be very disheartening to Joseph. Now, nowhere in the scriptures are we shown that Joseph ever question God about any of this maybe it was because he goes God you give me a dream I know it's going to happen I don't know you know he may have been following Romans eight twenty-eight 28 in, in his mind you know God you've promised that these my these these uh brothers of mine are going to bow down to me you've shown it to me I don't know how going to Egypt is going you know going into slavery is going to do this but he had something that he held on to and this is the beauty of what we need to do is always hold on to the truth that God gives us. Uh, whatever those verses are, and this is what I said this morning, what are the verses that mean something to you? Grab hold of those verses, and when you go through hard times, use those as your lifeline. You know, I've shared with you, Romans 8.28 is my lifeline when, when things seem to be going bad, because I go, God, you're still in charge. don't know how you're going to make it, but you're, you're in charge. I really think Joseph said, God, you gave me these visions. He knew the vision was from God. He might have doubted the vision as he's being sent to, you know, being walked to Egypt as a slave. Going, God, I just don't understand. Now my brothers are hundreds of miles away. I'm a slave. There's no reason they're ever going to bow down to me as a slave. And this is what he's saying. They were moved. And this is his history lesson for them. And it says, but God was with him. All right. And delivered him out of all of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and who made him governor over Egypt and all his house. So he's going, history, his, hist, history lesson. The bad, the 10 bad brothers sold their brother into slavery, but God was with them and, had, and raised him up. And again, he's pointing out, God raised up Abraham, he raised up Isaac, he raised up Jacob, now he's raising up Joseph. And Joseph's technically not considered a patriarch, but he's the, self, he's the savior of the, of the people of Israel. And many ways we look at Joseph and he is a picture of Jesus. There's nothing negative written about Joseph, outside of the fact that he was a little proud and arrogant, you know, with his visions, talking to his brothers, but he was humbled in his time in in Egypt but there's no place where he ever is shown questioning God because even when he stands before um, Potiphar's wife who's who's trying to seduce him he rejects and says I can't do this because of my God and you know he wasn't that old he wasn't that old when he was going through this. You know, he could have been just saying, well, I'm never going to go and get back home. God, God is, you know, has left me alone, has abandoned me. I might as well just enjoy this activity because if she's on my side, I'm going to have all the, you know, all the benefits of being on, uh, you know, on the mistress's good side. And yet he stood with God and rejected her. And then was accused of rape. And sent into prison. Yeah. And this is another picture. Sometimes doing the right thing does not necessarily mean good things are going to happen. And Joseph is one of those great examples. He did what was right. And got charged with rape. Now I have a feeling when I, when I look at that, I think Potiphar knew his wife because rape of, the, of the, the mistress would have been a capital offense. He probably should have taken Joseph's head off. But I think he knew his wife and her character and just decided to imprison him because he should have died. That should have been something he died for, and yet he didn't. All right, going on to verse 11. Now there came a dearth over the land of Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers found no substance. But when Jacob heard that there was corn in Egypt, he sent out our fathers first. And then, and at the second time, Joseph was made known to his brethren and Joseph's kindred was made known to Pharaoh. Then sent Joseph and called for his father, Jacob, and all of his kindred, 75 souls. So Jacob went down into Egypt and died, he and our fathers. And they carried him over to Shechem and laid him in the sepulcher that Abraham bought for a sum of money from the sons of Emor, the father of, Shechem, and when the time of promise drew nigh, which God had sworn unto Abraham, he, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose that knew not Joseph. So here we have some more history. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, can you picture standing in court, and your, your legal defense starts out with a history, history lesson, And he goes, now you remember Joseph went into Egypt and then there was a famine and Jacob sent his sons down there to get food, sent them a second time and Joseph revealed himself and brought them in. And he brought it in that they came to Egypt with 75 people in the family. Quite a a large family compared to what what Abraham had seen. Abraham had just, just one But by the time they go to Egypt, 75 people are in their family. And they go down there, and it gives us time frames. Jacob went down there, and he died. And our fathers, in other words, not just Jacob, but all of the the, the 12 patriarchs died as well. And he says Jacob was taken back to Shechem. The only piece of property they owned, and they took him back and buried him. And you know, one of the things about this, and we don't, we're not told this, but Joseph made one request of them, that when he died, he wanted to be taken, and they left Egypt, he wanted them to take his body and bury him where he, where he belonged in Shechem. And the, the very last sentence in Genesis is, and he was buried in a coffin in Egypt. <laughs> And it's talking about Joseph. Was buried in a coffin. And you know he is a high official. He's the second highest official in Egypt. He should have been buried in a huge ornate uh, burial ground for the Egyptians. And yet it it says that he wasn't. Now historically I I looked at an archaeological site one time. And they talked about how they found a huge sepulcher given to somebody named by Joseph's e- Egyptian name. And they really believed that he was originally buried under Egyptian uh, rites and, and passages because he was high up, but he was taken away. Now one of the things about Egypt, and this is something you may or may not know in history, whenever e- Egypt had a change in dynasty, they would take and literally go over all the buildings and get rid of the names of the old people. So there are places where they go to Egypt and they'll read the thing and all of a sudden the name will be completely chiseled off because they were trying to rewrite history. Sound a little familiar to what's going on in in our day and age where people are rewriting history? Revisionist history is not new. Just like everything else, there's nothing new under the sun. And... The reason for that is if you can get rid of people's roots, you can destroy the people. Israel and the Hebrew people have held on to their roots all the way back. They hold on to their roots by their celebrations that God has given them. They're able to hold on to their roots of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the deliverance of, from Egypt. And they celebrate that every year, that reinforces their roots. So that when they went through in 70 AD and were scattered all over the Roman Empire, they took their roots with them. And they celebrated their history every year. Every spring, they celebrated the Passover with the the leaving. Every fall, they celebrated the wandering in the wilderness. They reminded themselves of God's mercy and God's grace. This is something. And then when they got their nation back, they were able to come back as a full-fledged nation because they still had their history. How have people destroyed different nations? They've taken away their history and they they haven't had these huge celebrations that celebrated their history. What's going on now in America? We're destroying our history. We're destroying the Civil War monuments. We're destroying, we've been destroying for a long time, the, the records that go back all the way to the founding of our country and their children have been lied to about the founding of our country they were not they're not told about the pilgrims coming and the idea that the pilgrims came for one reason to start a church and to evangelize the native american people you know what are they told in school well they came to uh, pillage and, and rape the land and take it away from the from the from the natives and yes there were people that wanted to do that but that is not why The pilgrims came. That is not why the original founders of Jamestown came. They came to escape religious persecution, build a church, and evangelize. They came as missionaries. A very large group of missionaries, but they came as missionaries. Not everybody who followed did, but the original groups were coming in to say, We want to get away from all the problems of Europe, all the religious persecution of Europe, and we're going to, in the process, we're going to come and evangelize this new world where people don't know what's going on. And they held their history. And over the years, we've gotten away from our history. And because we don't understand it, and you know, I love history with a great passion. When I was in school, I didn't like memorizing dates and everything, but I loved the idea of learning history. Why do we do the things we do? Why have we become what we are? and it's, it's fun to be able to get into, and they're reminded every year of their history, which allowed them not to be totally assimilated into the world, because they're going, this is our history, God has protected us. He gave Abraham a promise, and that promise is celebrated every, everything, every year when they talk about the deliverance from Egypt, because God said so, and told their father Abraham that they were gonna go into Egypt, and they were going to be rescued. They celebrate their history. We need to be able to celebrate our Christian heritage and our Christian uh, standards. This is why celebrating Christmas is an important event, even though it's probably not actually happening on December and all of that. The idea of remembering what happened because Jesus was born. Now, the most important thing wasn't that he was born. The most important thing is that he died and rose again. But we need to celebrate both of those because if he wasn't born, he couldn't die. And he had to be born of a virgin, and that is important to understand. And then he died on the cross for our sins. And those are the two events that Christians celebrate. And we can't ever lose sight of those two two big events. Because if people can break that down, then they can destroy Christianity and our faith. But as long as we always remember, born of a virgin died for our sins and rose again, we have our strength. And that may be all. There may become a time when we are so attacked, so persecuted, that the only thing we can remember is that he was born of a virgin, died for our sins, and was resurrected. And we remember those only because of the holidays that we get to celebrate. Now, the world is trying to secularize those holidays. Christmas is totally gone, unless you're a Christian and and really understanding what it is. Christmas to the world does not mean anything. It's just a day to buy gifts and give, give each other gifts and have a day off and, and party. Resurrection is becoming wiped out. People are forgetting, why do we have Resurrection Sunday? And it's never really been a big day because it falls on Sunday. So it's never really been a big holiday. But you know, we as Christians need to keep these two holidays in our minds because that is what will build us when trials get, get ham, come our way. Remember Christmas. And Christmas has an interesting history They're, The church has tried to stamp out Christmas over the, over the, over the millennia. Uh, because they looked at it, and, and they look at it pretty much the way I do. It was built around a pagan holiday, uh, you know, for the, for the uh, uh, longest day of the year and all of that. It's built around the, a, lo- a pagan holiday. And so I have problems with it, but I also understand that we celebrate it as Christians as the birth of Jesus. And as long as we remember that we're celebrating the birth of Jesus, then I want to celebrate it. Keep people remembering about his birth. Because without his birth, we can't have his death. And his birth is very important because it is a miraculous birth to a virgin who had to travel hundreds of miles to get from where she lived to where he was supposed to be born. And then he was born, and then he was visited by the Magi, and then he was sent to Egypt, and then they ended up back in Nazareth. All of that, just as the scriptures said, and you go, wow, look at all of this. We need to remember these things and look and say, God, you predicted all this stuff long before it happened. And then our other one that we always have to keep in mind and never let these holidays get away from us as Christians. Not necessarily just the holidays, but what are we celebrating? Why are we celebrating? Why do we celebrate Easter and, and Christmas? Because they are pivotal historical points for Christianity. And it's very important for us to keep those in mind. This is how the Jews, and this is what, this is what Stephen's reminding them. He's saying, we, we practice this every year. We, we, you know these stories, and he probably put some of these, even though we don't see it. Well, and you guys know darn well this information. You know he's he's not trying to teach them anything. He's laying a foundation for his next part of his argument, and his next part of his argument is not uh, a very good one necessarily. Uh, in Exodus 12, chapter uh, verses 40 through 42, we get the ten plagues being being given. Uh, Genesis 17 was the fact that they were supposed to be uh, circumcision. All of these things that are going on that he's, that he's quoting and reminding them of. He, and these guys, remember he's talking to the Sanhedrin, made up of scribes and Pharisees. To be a Pharisee, the first thing you had to do was memorize the first five books of the Bible. You know, and be able to say them. All right? And you had to be 30 years old and married and have been taught and be, be invited into being a Pharisee. But the big thing was they had memorized all of these books. So when he's talking about this, you know, he, he is not teaching them anything. They're, they're thinking, uh, okay, yes, you're, you're quoting all these verses. We understand. Get to the point. I can almost picture the high priest saying, okay, have you gotten to the point yet? What, what's the point of this history lesson? He's probably getting irritated, as a matter of fact, that he's getting a history lesson uh, from this man who's supposed to defend himself. You know, you're you're accused of belittling Moses. Now, what is your defense? Uh, let's see. So Jacob went down. He carried. They carried him to Shechem, and he bought the, with a sum of money. And he was buried. Uh, verse seventeen. And when the time of promise drew nigh, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied till another king arose who knew not Joseph. So he says, the time of promise. What time? Abraham was told, 400 years. When the time of promise, 400 years, was fulfilled, or getting close, the people multiplied. And you know the story of Exodus. The king of Rose did not know, know Joseph, and he saw how populous the Jewish people were getting to be. Now, this is something that is very hard. They, they like having slaves, but the slaves start having children. The lazy aristocrats are so busy having fun and entertaining themselves that they don't tend to have children. That happened in the south, where the, the uh, families that owned slaves just were so busy being entertained that they were stopping to have children. They'd have one or two children. The slaves were having dozens of children. They were starting to get outnumbered. In today's world, you know, we're seeing the same thing happen in our world. The immigrants and everything that are coming in and working hard and, and trying to keep a living, are having lots and lots of kids. Those who are American citizens and being spoiled and and quote unquote privileged don't have kids. Egypt was doing that same part. The king's looking around, the pharaoh's looking around, and going, "Uh, these Hebrew people are outnumbering us. And at that time, they were almost considered citizens. You know, he's looking around because Joseph brought them in. And they have the best land. They have the best farmland, and they're raising cattle. In the best farmland of Egypt, and he's looking around and say they got the best land. They're 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 uh, growing like weeds. They're getting larger. What's going to happen is they're going they're going to try to take over Egypt, and he puts them into servitude. And this is exactly what what happened to him. And this is what Stephen's reminding them. They went into servitude because this king rose up. And verse 19, in the same dealt supplety with our kindred. And evilly entreated our fathers, so that they were cast out their young and to that end that they might not live. In which time Moses was born and was exceedingly fair, and nourished up in his father's house three months. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of Egypt, of the Egyptians, and was mighty in words indeed. And when he was a full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffering wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptian. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how by God's hand he would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day when he showed himself to them as they strove and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, you are brethren, why do you wrong one another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away saying, who, are you? who made you a ruler and a judge over you, uh, us? Will you kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at the scene and, and was a stranger in the land of Midian where he begat two sons. So we're going more into this history. <laughs> and it's kind of an interesting history when we, when we look at it. He says, and Moses was born. And a kind of an interesting picture, because this is not something you read necessarily. It says he was exceedingly fair. The exceedingly literally is godly. And he was fair. He was beautiful to behold. So he had some, he was very handsome as a baby. And he was nourished. And this word for nourished is not just fed, but it literally means he was taught. It's to nourish the mind. So for three months, they're teaching him his history about Judaism. Now, how much a three-month-old is going to understand? We don't know. But you know, who was the one that got to nurse him when Pharaoh's daughter picked him up? He was sent back to mama until he was done being weaned. And now, we don't understand this, but they didn't wean their children until four or five years old. All right? So they had him for all of his young age, teaching him his history, teaching him his heritage, that he was a Jew. Probably teaching him to hide it, but he was a Jew and he was taught. And this is what that nourish means. And then it turns around, and Pharaoh's daughter took him and nourished him as her own son. He was brought into the house of Pharaoh to be taught all that royalty needed to know. This is one of the reasons that when, when, when Moses was standing at the burning bush saying, God, I can't lead this people. You'd almost picture God saying, why do you think I put you in Pharaoh's house for 40 years? You learned how to handle people. You learned how to govern people. Um, and it's amazing sometimes the excuses we will make to God when we know darn well that they're an excuse. Uh, God, I know that you've taught me to manage people, but I can't manage people. And that's what Moses was telling him at that point. Um, And so she brought him up and it says in verse 20, and Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the the Egyptians and was mighty in word and deed. He was was prince of Egypt. Prince of Egypt out there because Pharaoh's daughter. Now, was he number one prince of Egypt? No, but he was being groomed to be a leader. He was being groomed at the very least to to command the, the military and to take care of governmental affairs, he was being taught to run a nation. Maybe because he was second or third in line, but it's saying you will learn, just in case. You know, your, your, your brothers will be going to war. There's a good chance one, you know, that most of them will die. You're going to be ready. Even though you're not one of us, you've been raised as one of us. And so they were brought up, and it says when he was 40 years old, <laughs> it came into his heart to go see his brothers that was God Um, and Moses's life is pretty pretty good he he lived 120 years and his life breaks down to three three periods of time 40 years being raised up as as leader of Egypt 40 years on the backside of the wilderness and 40 years leading the people of Israel through the wilderness so he's 40 40 40 for his lifespan Uh, so how long did the 10 plagues take not very long because he was 40 he was 80 when he came back and he was 40 years in the wilderness so the 10 plagues a lot of people well maybe those plagues took years to do no (laughs) 40 40 40 means it it happened quick otherwise it wouldn't even been miraculous if the 10 plagues had lasted over seven years they had been going oh what's the big deal these plagues went one right after the other in rapid succession against their gods and it was a big deal And it says that when he was 40, he went out to see his his brothers and he saw one of them being beat by by an Egyptian. And he's looking at it going, he doesn't deserve it. Whatever whatever the reason was, the Egyptian was being mean. And beating somebody that, as far as Moses was concerned, was not legitimate, he went out and he killed the Egyptian. And And Exodus tells us that he buried the man in the sand so that he didn't get found. All right. So this poor family is not even going to know that their, their husband, their their son, whatever, died because he's the he killed him. Now it's kind of an interesting thing. Pharaoh, he was in line for Pharaoh, so he could have just executed him, but in his anger he executed him on the spot without a trial, without 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 anything, and we do know that Moses had a temper. Moses had a bad problem with the temper. You know, he comes off Mount Sinai. The people are worshiping in front of the golden idol, and what's he do? He breaks the Ten Commandments. All right. Uh, he he gets mad at the people of, of of Israel, and he beats the stone that he's supposed to speak to, and he it gives a picture of God being angry with them when God wasn't angry with them. And you know, Moses had a problem with a temper. He kills the Egyptian. So the next day he goes back out. And he sees two Israelites fighting and he goes why are you fighting and the interesting thing is just as we've seen in so many other times and it says the one who had done wrong turned around and attacked Moses Moses is trying to bring reconciliation and the one that had been in the wrong attacks the one who's trying to bring reconciliation and, and good this happens so often when we are trying to do good and we're trying to help out somebody, so often that person will attack our righteousness and our goodness. And Moses is attacked and going, what are you going to do? Are you going to kill me like you did the Egyptian? You know, and at that point, Moses knew that he was in trouble. His hidden sin was not hidden. And this is something we always have to remember. Nothing we do stays hidden. And if we don't confess our sins to God and put it under the blood, God says, I will shout your sin from the rooftop. Now, how much of a rooftop that is depends on how much influence we have. This is why some of these big evangelists and leaders get their sin shouted out to the world because they're saying, look how good I am, and I'm serving God, and I'm doing this. And then they're sinning be- under, the, under, under the radar, and God says, okay, you have a worldwide influence. We're going to shout your sin to a worldwide audience. And this is, Moses' sin is shouted out. And he's going, oh, I didn't get away with it. David's sin is going to be, oh, I didn't get away with it when Nathan, in court, in front of other people, says David, "You're the man. You you are the one that took this man's only only sheep." And Moses decides that it is time to run. And and it says in verse twenty nine, "Then fled Moses at this saying and was a stranger in the land of Midian, where he had two sons." And we're going to have to leave the history lesson with him in Midian. Uh, because Midian was a kind of an interesting place because Midians were Hebrews. They, f- they believed in the, in, the one, in the one true God. And so we have this whole process going on of Moses fleeing for his life and just happens to end up in Hebrew territory so that he can learn about the one God that he was taught about when he was five years old. So isn't it amazing how God controls... Every bit of our life, Moses comes up and probably had some idea that he might be the deliverer. He tries to deliver them by killing, you know, trying to protect them, and then he gets chased away because he tried to do things in his own strength. Oftentimes, we try to get ahead of God and try to get do things in our own strength and get ahead of God, and God says, "Just let's slow you down a little bit. It's got to be me." I'm the one that's going to do this. And when God slows us down, the, problem, the biggest problem we have when God slows us down is sometimes we stay slowed down. And when it's time to move, just like Moses was, uh-uh, God can't do it, been there, done that, not going to do it again. And we need to be careful that we don't get ahead of God and then try to use that as an excuse for not stepping forward when he tells us to go forward. And very important for us to be able to start and, and follow God in all that. Lord, we just thank you for this day. Lord, help us to learn to follow you in your time. And Lord, help us to always remember that your time is not our time. You see things at a longer, broader perspective than we do, and help us always to stay patient for your time. And your time is not our time. And it may be in our children or our grandchildren's time. We just ask you to help us to always keep you in mind. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? without the gift of Jesus it will be an eternity in hell without God good works will not get you there for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works lest any man should boast to spend eternity with God we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord to be assured eternal life we simply talk to God admit you are a sinner and ask him for his free gift you must mean the words to get the to be answered Jesus is waiting to hear your request if you have asked him for eternal life he has come into you and he will change you start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life after you understand the book of Ephesians you can start reading the Gospel of John Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.